0: what a glorious time to be together. Always is when we are with uh, the Lord's people in our gatherings together. When an unexpected and unwanted bug visited me last weekend, I really missed being here uh, with you. Uh, I was also truly rejoicing for having Scott Basolo in our midst and as we were sharing Jude and I threw in the towel Saturday afternoon, he said, well, I'm almost done. I can finish up and I'll just do part seven and you can come back and do part six. So uh, thank you, Scott. And then he was rewarded with COVID-19. Scott, uh, we miss you and uh, please, please get well. We look forward to having you uh, back with us. Well, since I couldn't be here with you last Lord's Day, um, Marcia and I Watched the live stream of the service, and if you've had a chance to do that, you know what a bittersweet experience it is It's really sweet to be able to look in and say ah yeah that's that's home that's where I belong and but it's really bitter at the same time to to not be here in person Well, we um uh, got ready for church, which means moved from one chair to another. And uh, for over an hour before our live stream began, out of curiosity I did something that I can almost never do. I watched on television parts of many Sunday morning broadcasts of church services and other so-called Christian programs. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it when I did that. It was purely curiosity, and then I realized that was like intensive review for the book on apostasy. Uh, There was not one of any of the maybe ten programs that I happened to sample that I could ever recommend that you watch. Um, There are some. there, There are a few. But when we read in Jude that certain persons have crept in unnoticed... We know we're reading about Jude's time, um, you know, after the tail end of the apostolic era in the first century. And if Jude were to send us an update today, I think he would say they've crept in unnoticed and they love to use television and the internet. Uh, What a relief when we finally got to watch the service of Heritage Bible Church and hear someone open God's Word and uh, expound upon it. Now, as you know, it it wasn't our plan for me to preach the final installment of our series on Jude, but that's how it worked out. So even though you've heard the marvelous end of this book, so enriching and encouraging and convicting and uplifting all at once, um, we're going to fill in the missing piece today. Officially, verses 17 through 20 and with that in mind and especially since it worked out that i get to do the the wrap up to this seven part series i want to take the wide angle view of the book of jude so i'm going to give you an outline that covers the entire book and i'm just oh i almost giggle at my first point here that i got a chance to say this in public verses 1 through 16 is about the creepy ones and then starting in verse 17, but you, beloved, and again in verse 20, but you, beloved. Now, you know, Jude told us why he wrote this letter. It's in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down To the saints. Now, typically, we say that Jude started out to write on one subject and he changed subjects. He was going to write a sweet little letter about our our common salvation, but he changed the subject entirely. Well, the text does say that something changed uh, along the way, but on further review, I don't think Jude switched topics because he did write about our common salvation. He said right in the first verse, he's writing to those who are the called, beloved of, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He is writing to people about our common salvation, but... Um, When we conclude this book, you or concluded this book last week, you saw how powerfully he encourages us and exhorts us to spread the news of salvation. And he even mentions that our purpose on earth now, before Jesus comes, is to have mercy on people and to save people, even snatching them out of the fire. He is talking about our common salvation. But what he meant in verse 3 is that Part of accurately understanding our common salvation is understanding that this sweet, pure, wonderful fellowship of the body of Christ that we enjoy is constantly under assault. We can only be what God intends us to be as a church if we contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So you know what he said next, and it's um, where I get my first point of my outline. Verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, friends, always, wherever Jesus is building his church and and gathering believers together into local spiritual families, we call local churches, wherever that happens, Satan attacks, and his primary attack comes through infiltrators. It's just exactly as Jesus described in that parable of the the wheat and the tares, where the, the, the farmer sows good wheat, good seed, and then an enemy comes along and sows a seed that while it's growing, it looks just like the tares, and you can't tell for sure until the end. The infiltrators look and talk and act like Christians, but they're phonies. Satan's deception is so skillful that most of his dupes have no idea of their true spiritual condition. These people have crept in unnoticed. That's where I take the license to call them the creepy ones. Because they come creeping in. Now our passage for today is the the turning point in this letter. But I want you to see that turning point by seeing what comes before it. There are at least seven references to the creepy ones and there are more than a dozen descriptions of them. There are actually, if you count all the pronouns that refer back to them, there are more than seven, but I've picked out the seven that add to the composite description of these ones um, and hence the creepy ones. Follow along. I'm going to show you these seven references. Reference number one, you already saw it in verse four. Those certain persons. And it tells us there two things about them. They've crept in unnoticed. No one ever shows up at any church and says, I'm here to cause trouble. No, they, they look good. They, they, they know the right words to say. They, they sound good. They act nice. second thing we know about them is that they were long before marked out uh, for this condemnation that refers to the fact that God has never been secretive about what happens to people who oppose him long beforehand said if you come and cause trouble with God's people here's what's going to happen to you reference number two is also in verse four where they are called ungodly persons and he told us two more things about them there They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That means they tend to excuse themselves for ignoring God's morality and overemphasizing His grace. We can do whatever we want to because we're forgiven. And secondly, in that verse it says, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They want to uh, avoid the uncomfortable reality that the truth of the gospel is divisive. It's very narrow-minded that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Some people don't like that. They want to mix in whatever else suits their fancy. A few weeks ago, after the um, first service, um, a man came up and uh, We were talking, we talked on many occasions, and he proposed to me an interpretation of something that Jesus said that's recorded in the Gospels. And uh, I told him that, um, I I get what you're saying, but the meaning that he was giving to that verse uh, wasn't possible according to the Greek, or even the English for that matter. It's not that there's a, a translation problem. And when I said that, he became quite agitated. And so I explained to him, we need to understand that there is only one correct meaning of any passage of the Bible. It's what the original writer, in his vocabulary, in his place, in his time, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write to his original readers and what he expected them to understand in that grammatical and historical context. That's the one correct meaning, and we have to sometimes work a little bit to make sure we know What that meaning is. And when I said that, he raised his voice and said, Oh, you're an expert, are you? (laughs) About that loud. And uh, I I explained, well, I am telling you that is what the Greek says. And yeah, I do know it. But anybody else can verify what I said. And so I went on to explain, thought this would settle things down. That if we have different interpretations of a passage, then either I'm right and you're wrong, or you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong, and we haven't found the meaning yet. But there are not contradictory interpretations of any passage of uh, the Bible. Well, he ended up yelling a couple more things, and he stormed out. And that was the culmination of a number of interactions that Scott Basolo and I have had with him over a, over a span of many weeks. And I, and I pray for him. I would love to have him uh, come back once he meets with the elders and, and we talk about uh, what some ground rules are for fellowship in the, in the church. But what offended that man and what infuriated that otherwise quite friendly man was the idea that there is one specific and understandable faith. There's one set of doctrines which is once for all handed down to the saints. He he emailed me later uh, that one of the reasons that he rejects the authority of the Apostle Paul, which was one of his big points, and he rejects the authority of Paul's New Testament books, is that he said Paul disagreed with Jesus and the earlier apostles, and and he offered me proof. His proof was, we don't have any verse where Jesus says, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and therefore, Paul was twisting what Jesus taught. You see, didn't understand the idea that God has used all of the writers of Scripture together to put together this once for all handed down to the saints, faith. In other words, he was denying the uniqueness of the one true gospel and the one set of truth in the New Testament. He was denying the, 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 the gospel of our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ by denying the plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible, that every word is inspired and all of it is equally inspired. Now, I have to say, uh, church life would be easier uh, especially for the shepherds of the flock if only people would shout and storm out when they reject something that the Bible teaches. But that's not usually how the creepy ones act. Most stay under the radar, and they take the long game, they, and they choose to stay and sow discord or, or spread apathy or discontent. Now, Having referred to certain persons who've infiltrated and having labeled them ungodly persons, the next thing Jude did, and we saw this, he gave us three vivid illustrations of evil influences that corrupt God's people if allowed to continue. That was verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Those ungodly persons, for example... The unbelievers who kept Israel out of the Promised Land—they're perfectly fine with accepting the deliverance from slavery, but oh, that Ten Commandments stuff—I don't think so. Then there was the angels who sinned grotesquely. There was the men. There were the men of Sodom who tried to do what the evil angels did, only in reverse, going after flesh of a different kind. The third reference to the creepy ones is in verse eight. These men. Verse 8 begins, yet in the same way these men, that is in the same way as those three illustrations of rebellious infiltrators, um, that's what these men are doing. Reference 4 is again these, these men, it's in verse 10, but these men revile things which they do not understand and from those two references we know they flout the boundaries that God created just as demons do. You know, an example today would be the, um, what it is the, what is it, the Respect for Marriage Act. We respect marriage so much that we're going to give it a new definition that is completely in contradiction to what God says. That's the kind of thing that's coming it's here, actually. It also tells us that they revile things they don't understand. The word revile is literally blaspheme. They'll, they will raise their voices. They will, they will try to, uh, to criticize things that they don't even understand. There's another reference to them in verse 11 with the pronoun them. Verse 11 begins, three-word sentence, woe to them. Woe is that pronouncement of divine damnation. And then Jude gave us an avalanche of illustrations to describe those infiltrators. And he goes on from verse 11 through verse 13. None of these descriptions do you want to wear. Gone the way of Cain, rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. They are hidden reefs in your love feast, clouds without water, dead trees, wild waves like a hurricane leaving its wreckage wandering stars that are headed for darkness. The sixth reference to them in verse 14, it's another, these men. Verse 14, it was all also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Now as Scott explained when he got to this passage, the, the reference here is from the book of Enoch. That's part of a group of Jewish books, Jewish writings, collectively known as the Pseudepigrapha. It contains some things that were said by the man Enoch. You can read about him in Genesis chapter 5. He's he's one of two people in the Bible that, that got sort of a personal rapture. He didn't die. He was just taken directly to be with the Lord. The other one is... Elijah, okay, I thought, I thought you'd finish my sentence, okay. Um, but this book, the book of Enoch, was not written by Enoch, uh, and it's not part of the canon of Scripture. Nevertheless, it was well known among Jews of the first century, and it came to be well known by all of the early Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. So Jude just simply quoted something with which they were familiar that reiterated his point. I could quote to you from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. That wouldn't make the Gettysburg Address inspired, but if it's illustrating a biblical principle, I could use it as an illustration. That's, what, that's all that Jude is doing. And the reference to the book of Enoch describes these men in several ways, and there is definitely a theme word in what he included there in verse, um, in verse uh, 14. Um, and 15 and 16 all the ungodly their ungodly way deeds done in an ungodly way and harsh things spoken by ungodly sinners he's talking about the fate of the ungodly and the fact that there are ungodly ones who infiltrate the fellowship of God's people now I'll give you a little sidebar here Scott, uh, being as respectful as he is, didn't want to trample on my turf knowing I wrote my master's thesis on the identity and the sin of those angels back in Jude 6 and 7. So he left it to me to tell you that something else interesting about the book of Enoch is that the book of Enoch contains the oldest known comments on Genesis chapter 6. And it tells us that the best of Jewish scholars a century or two before Jesus understood the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be demons. Now that was what I came to understand that, that to mean. And that in itself, the fact that that is in Enoch, doesn't prove that my interpretation of Genesis 6, Genesis 6 is correct. But along with all the exegetical reasons for saying they are fallen angels, it's kind of like a cherry on top of the whipped cream of the conclusion that uh, that is the correct understanding of that. So if you disagree with me, you've got a few centuries of interpretation to, uh, uh, to, to argue against. You can get to heaven... Without a proper understanding of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. But it's more fun to agree with me, so uh, take that. Reference number 7 to the creepy ones, verse 16, the pronoun these. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage and from that description we know more about these infiltrators they are grumblers that's that word gangudzo in the greek it means murmuring about circumstances they are finding fault they not only complain about circumstances they find people to blame for those circumstances following after their own lusts they're 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 selfish They want to have things their own way. They speak arrogantly. They are self-inflated and they love flattering people. They are uh, manipulative. And if you assemble all the pieces from all those references to the creepy ones, it's easy to see they subtly do the opposite of all of the one another's of the body of Christ. There's a, there's a Greek reflexive pronoun, alelone, is how you say it, that is translated one another. And it's one of the most fascinating studies you can do. If you want to just, you know, clear your head of a whole bunch of clutter and figure out, what does God want me to do in regard to other people? Go study the one another. There's a couple dozen of them. And we've studied them in the past. You can even find sermons on it on our website if you want to. Fascinating thing. The creepy ones do the opposite. Look at some of that summary there in verse 16 there, grumblers, that refers to the, the quiet discontent with things in the church. It's the same word that's used over in Philippians chapter 2 verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Their grumbling describes the quiet behind the scenes complaining, the whispering, the mumbling, the, the sour expression. And then uh, disputing refers to open criticism and attack like Korah and his cohorts did to Moses and Aaron that Jude referred to earlier. Finding fault describes the person who is not at all interested in finding a solution to a problem, but always interested in blaming it on someone who complains against God for his will. That's an A word not used very often in the New Testament, we we found a use of it in a... It came from a a description of a character in a Greek play. And this character was described in the play this way. You're satisfied by nothing that befalls you. You complain at everything. You don't want what you've got. You long for what you haven't got. In winter you wish it were summer, and in summer that it were winter. Winter. You are like the sick folk hard to please and the one who complains about his lot in life. So, what is Jude's point in all of this? Don't play games with God and his people, uh, flattering people there and uh, speaking arrogantly and following after their own lust. That is a perfect description of much of what is done in churches these days designed to make people feel good. I have lived through the arrival of and the planting of the seeds and the sprouting of the plant of, the, of this entire self-esteem movement. When I was in school, we didn't talk about self-esteem. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was never a subject subject. Now, it's the cornerstone of, uh, of anti-Christian psychology. Well, your problem is you don't have high enough self-esteem. Now, we know what, we know what people mean by that. It isn't that there isn't a, a kernel of truth in there if you're constantly uh, diminishing yourself and all of that. But the point is the whole self-esteem movement is absolutely antithetical to Christianity. The problem is not that you don't have enough self-esteem. The problem is you have way too much self-esteem. That's why Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, meaning apply as much love to your neighbor as you do to taking care of your own self. Humility is what will allow you to know the Lord, serve the Lord, build up other people, and oh, what does he do with the humble? He exalts them. You want to build your self-esteem? Head for the bottom of the heap and start lifting up other people. You understand that's antithetical to Christianity to speak arrogantly, to manipulate people. What, what does Second Timothy chapter 4 say? And, uh, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction because the days will come when people want to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Now, it wasn't on Sunday morning last week, but since I was last with you, I, I, I also listened to a rather in-depth uh, exploration of what, um, what, what Joel Osteen preaches. And it was, it was appalling, absolutely appalling, And it was was all excerpts from interviews that he's done. When somebody like Larry King or somebody else would say, so so what is your position on same-sex marriage? And he always begins his answer the same way. Well, I don't know. That's always what he says. You can't know the Bible and not know God's design for the human race. Male and female, he created them. And so he says, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but but we don't condemn anybody. Well, then you're not preaching what the Bible says. Why did I come to Christ? Because I found out I'm condemned. I found out I deserve eternity in the lake of fire. That's exactly the opposite of what the Creepy ones want to teach. Now pastors are trained to tell people, well, don't, conf- don't, don't confront anyone. Meet their needs if you can, but don't call them to repentance. Don't call them to, to uh, commitment. One of the other things that was asked of, uh, of Osteen was, was uh, so you don't preach on sin? Well, I don't know. People already have a pretty good idea what they've done wrong. They don't need me to tell them. Well, how do you tell the good news if you don't tell the bad news? Christ died not for your lack of self-esteem. He died for your, for your sins. But now we're to tell people things like, come and be refreshed. Or uh, you ever heard this one? Give Jesus a chance. Okay, you've tried a whole bunch of other things. Now give Jesus a chance. He'll give you a 30-day money-back guarantee. If he doesn't come through, all of that stuff is designed to tell people they're important and they're in control. That's what you do to draw crowds. It's just that it isn't Christianity. Well, there are lots of creepy ones, I'm sorry to say. And now look at the punchline. What to do. Point number two, starting at verse 17, but you, beloved... It says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you is the contrast. He said all those terrible things about the ones who crept in unnoticed. But Jude says, but since you aren't like the creepy ones, here's what I want you to do. First command, you ought to remember. Remember what? Well, glad you asked go back to the words spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That refers to the faith which has once for all been handed down to the saints. That refers to everything so far in the New Testament, what was said by the apostles, and they accepted the canonicity and the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Old Testament. Everything but the book of Revelation had been written and very soon the book of Revelation was going to come along and say exactly the same thing about it. In other words, cling to what God says in His written word. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verses 18 and 19. That they were saying to you in the last time There shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. In other words, they aren't brothers and sisters. They're infiltrators. And the most specific reference to these ungodly, phony infiltrators that comes from the apostles that came before Mainly, I think he was almost quoting verbatim, the Apostle Peter. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. This is one of the reasons that we understand that Peter predicted the prolif- proliferation of the infiltrators, and Jude sent notice they're here. And by the way, a little note on 2 Peter chapter 3 when he talks about mockers coming in their mocking. Follow through in that context a little bit. What primarily are the teachings that that people slip into the church? Most of all, they attack the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. Just get rid of those first 11 chapters Just say that they're symbolic or they're poetical or they're to be interpreted allegorically. Because if God created everything in six days, where is direct creation? And if He created them male and female, that's the design for marriage. And if Adam and Eve, our federal heads, fell, then we all fell in Adam and Eve and if the flood happened that shows you how badly God uh, how how firmly God deals with rebellion and with and with sin but if you can just spiritualize all of that away then you don't have to deal with the bad news to which the answer is the good news of Jesus Christ. And the other place they tend to attack is the end. Peter says, they, they, they come with their mocking, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's going on just like it always has from the beginning. And Peter rather subtly says, when they say that, it escapes their notice that God killed them all in the flood. So looking back to the end, but then they say, where's the promise of his coming? And Peter says, look, God doesn't live within time. Who are you to put him on a timetable when he's going to fulfill his promises? But the mockers mock the beginning and they mock the end. And once they do that, they can mock all through the middle of it and get away with it. So um, it's interesting also to notice that in that same context that Jude has said, refer uh, remember what was said before by the prophets in back in second Peter's context second Peter chapter 3 verses 16 and 16 he connected the dots between the mockers to come and the words of Paul second Peter 3:15 and 16 just as also our beloved brother Paul don't tell me Peter and Paul weren't friends they were Paul loved Peter so much he confronted him when he when he erred just as also our beloved brother Paul According to the wisdom given him wrote to you, so also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of, their scripture, of the Scriptures to their own destruction. The infiltrators love to distort Scripture. They don't mind quoting it. They just mind being precise about it. Just like Satan was when he came to in the person of the serpent and he confronted Eve and he quoted God with just a little tweak to make her doubt what God had said. I love that verses 15 and 16 in 2 Peter chapter 3. Isn't it cool to have you know that none other than the apostle Peter found some of the things in Paul's letters hard to understand? So if you say, well, you know, I don't quite get that. Okay. Neither did Peter. We gotta dig here. We gotta do some, we gotta do some homework. And would you notice he also calls Paul's writings scriptures? Equal authority to what we call the Old Testament. And you know, by the way, Paul was also specific in warning that troublemakers would come and that they would infiltrate the church, even to the point of seeking to infiltrate the, the leadership. When Paul was saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus for his last, on his last visit there, we read in Acts twenty twenty eight through 30, he says, be on guard, you don't have to be on guard unless there's a danger of attack, right? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, like we celebrated at the table earlier. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. The creepy ones are going to creep in unnoticed, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, even from among the leaders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Oh, that's a big, long description of the creepy ones. And then he says... But you, beloved, be on your guard. And then look what he says next. Again, but you, beloved, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on and gives you the next command, keep yourselves in the love of God. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. What most holy faith? That which was written beforehand by the apostles. That faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And notice the repetition. But you, beloved. First thing he did to describe these people is the called, chosen, uh, beloved. In verse 1. And now he says, but you, beloved. Now Scott already took us from here to the glorious conclusion of this book. Review as needed. You might like his sermon even better. It was really good last week. You might like it even better when you've got the one that leads up to it. But these orders are very specific. They tell you what to do for yourself. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That means by the way you live and what you believe and what you act on and the way you treat people, keep yourself in the, where you're going to be a conduit for God's love to pass through you to other people. And then what should you do for people who don't yet know the love of God? Have mercy on them. Save some of them. God wants to bring some people to faith. They have to hear the gospel in order to come to faith. We're the ones who can speak the gospel to them. And he says, uh, some of them even, it's like snatching them from the fire. That's what God has left us here to do. Now, if I knew for sure that I could say one last thing to you, and don't get me wrong, I'm not dying I'm not retiring, Uh, I haven't lost my brains yet, Mm, trickling, but if I knew that I was speaking to beloved children of God and it was the last thing I could ever say, I can't think of anything I would rather say than remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and keep yourself in the love of God. But you, beloved ones, hang your hat on the Scriptures. Believe it. Stand on it. Contend earnestly for it because there are creepy ones that the enemy continues to send into our midst. And let's pray. Father, thank you for this fellowship among the beloved ones, and thank you for the privilege that is ours to worship you in this manner, to proclaim your word. Father, we pray you will um, help us to be on the alert. Remind us that We must always contend earnestly for the faith, but we do that best when we are one-anothering. We do that best when we are fellowshipping and encouraging, and in that way we keep ourselves in the midst of the flow of Your love from person to person, even from generation to generation. Thank You, Father, that You call us the Beloved. Thank you that we are secure in your Son, Jesus Christ. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.